everybody, and welcome to Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. My guest today on Attendance Bias is Nate Toby of Northern California. Nate chose to discuss August 2nd, 2003 at the Loring Air Force Base in Limestone, Maine. If this date and location sounds familiar to you, it is almost certainly because it is the first day of the IT Festival. It was my first overnight festival experience, and Nate and I both had a lot to say about not just the music, but the entire experience of being at a fish festival. And for decades since the festival, I just took for granted that night two of it was the better night. Set two of the second night was everything I wanted in 2003. But decades later now, listening back in preparation of this podcast, it dawned on me just how great night one is. Overall, this podcast has helped me place late 1.0 fish in context, and it's also helped me gain a deeper understanding in the rhythm and flow of 2.0. During today's conversation, Nate calls the IT Festival the demarcation of 2.0's signature sound. I couldn't agree with him more, and I really appreciate the preparation that he put into this episode. I'm sure it'll come through as you listen. So get your best camping gear in the car, stay up late for the sound check and the tower set, and take care of your shoes in that mud as we join Nate Toby to talk to him about August 2nd, 2003, day one of the IT Festival. Nate, welcome to Attendance Bias. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm so excited to talk about today's episode, today's show that you picked. I say that at the beginning of every episode, but I guess mm-hmm. the attendance bias guests have a talent for picking really good shows and meaningful shows. And you and I have something in common with this show, which is August 2nd, 2003, which is night one of the IT Festival, that this was my first festival, not just my first fish festival, but it was my first overnight weekend camping festival. And this was your first festival, fish or overall? This was my first festival at all. That's great. I can't wait to compare our experiences. So we'll get into that in a bit. But before we get into fish even or it or 2003 as a whole, let's talk about you a little bit. Let's meet today's guest. So according to my notes, you grew up in New Jersey in Watchung. Is that Mm -hmm. pronounced right? I'm I'm always good. I'm, I'm from New York, but I'm always unsure about certain New Jersey town names, but you grew up in Wachung. Now you live in Northern California. Yes. And so as you grew up before fish was even a thing, what were some of your musical favorites? So interesting to reflect on that because music is a big part of every day in my life now. But when I was growing up, um, it feels tragic to say this, but I didn't really know very much about music. Um, I had, you know, my exposure to it was mainly through piano lessons or other things that all sucked. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I just, you know, I just, I liked, you know, I liked the music in Star Wars. I mean, once I was in high school, I got really, really into hip hop and I loved Wu-Tang Clan and like Dr. Dre. And I mean, I was just watching MTV. Instinct seemed really bad, but I liked rap. So, so I'm just <laughs> guessing this is the mid to late nineties then. Yes, this when I first started really paying attention to MTV was probably in like, yeah, the early, probably throughout the 90s, like starting in like the early 90s. You know, I mean, I remember liking Michael Jackson a lot. I mean, I was just listening to like basic pop music. I, I didn't really see myself as being particularly excited about music. Um, and that really wasn't until I got to college um, that 
and that started to change. My parents, incidentally, were huge deadheads, saw, you know, 300 plus shows. But, you know, they're your parents. And like, I didn't want to listen to what I wasn't even interested in what they were doing. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> what was there a turning point or was there something that happened in between when you were in high school listening to what at the time was pop music? Uh, you know, Wu-Tang yeah. was never really. Yeah. I don't know if I I don't know. Would you I don't know enough about hip hop. Was Wu-Tang, Wu-Tang mainstream? I know they were popular for sure. They were like, yeah, they were pretty close to mainstream. I mean, I'd say that like really diving, diving into their music was more kind of um, off the beaten path. But but there were some songs that were pretty, pretty popular. Yeah, of course, Cream. Yeah. Even I yeah. know that one. <laughs> exactly. Right, right, right. So yeah. what was the turning point? Dr. Dre and Nas and like Jizza and like there was a bunch of stuff I liked, which is super creative music. I mean, I still appreciate it a lot. I, I, I really appreciate do. it more now than I did at the time, I think, because my brother, who's a couple years older than me, he was very much into Nas and Dr. Dre and the Chronic and Snoop and Wu-Tang and all that in that mid to late 90s melange of good hip hop. And yeah. I was that was when I was really discovering the world of classic rock. And that's mm-hmm. where I was like, oh, my God, have you heard of uh, this song called Gimme Shelter? I bet you never heard it before. You know, I was discovering it for the first time. And so I was a little disdainful of what my brother liked. It just didn't appeal to my nature. But now when I listen back, my girlfriend now loves like Wu-Tang and she'll put yeah. the RZA on and I'm just blown away. Yeah, it is. It's incredibly interesting, like very dynamic music. They're sampling all kinds of different styles of music. It, there's a lot of spoken word poetry stuff kind of going on. It's really very thoughtful. The other, the other thing that just occurred to me was um, probably the most interesting record that I did like a lot when I was a kid. I think I was probably in seventh grade or something like that was Ill Communication. Oh, my and God. Yeah. The Beastie, Beastie Boys. Boys. Sure. And, and later on in high school, I got into Paul's Boutique and those two albums I think are the most sophisticated and introduced me to a lot of other genres of music of like jazz. And I mean, I didn't realize that's what was going on, but I remember that I really liked those albums and I would listen to them like all day, just over and over. So I think that was the first real breakthrough for me of being like, I like music was probably around then. It's funny. I feel when you brought that up, memory started flooding back into my head too. I remember the tape. It was like a white tape, a cassette tape. Yeah. And that and Raising Hell by Run DMC uh, was kind of something that it's funny to say this now looking back, but it was like family friendly. Like my, my brother and my parents, when we were all in the car together, we'd put in the Beastie Boys or Run DMC or the other in that trifecta would be Weird Al. Uh-huh. Like that's kind of how my early musical development was. So I see totally. those similarities. Oh, yeah. Weird, Weird, Weird Al was funny. Yeah, he yeah. still is. And yeah. so you said that there was some sort of turning point uh, as you yes. got older. Where was it that you started to take music a little more seriously as a listener? Well, the first big turning point in retrospect, I mean, I don't know if I saw it this way at the time, but I went to, I remember this very vividly. I'm sure a lot of your listeners do. I went to my first live concert, live, like real concert, which was actually the roots. My first was like my second week in college. And I went with a bunch of guys from my fraternity. I don't remember, but anyway, the main thing I vividly remember was like by the third song, I was jumping up on, on to up and down on this bench of seats. I was just losing my mind. I was so happy. <laughs> it was just 
the music just, you know, of course, being able to, I had no idea how powerful music could be live and with other people. Um, and the guys I went with thought I had just like gone completely nuts. <laughs> I mean, they were just like, what, what are you doing? And they just, they were, you know, you're sort of more easygoing, I guess, music attendees. They were more, more casual about it. But for me, it just like got right into my body. And I was like, I got to dance. Um, and I just remember just jumping up and down for like three hours. It was just like the entire show. I was just so high on life. You know, I still had never done, I never even really tried any drugs or anything. I mean, I was just brand new at school and this experience was just blowing my mind. But it was actually, I think of maybe a year later or, or so when I happened to be hanging out in a friend's dorm, I don't, he was off somewhere and I was just like messing around with music on his computer. I remember I turned on what I now know was the Yem from Big Cypress. Um, and I, I just was like, what is fish? Like, I don't know idea what this is. I've heard, you know, and I knew people, I encountered people who had gone to fish shows. And so I was kind of curious about it from the very first time I heard it. I mean, I remember playing it and I just was captured by it. It was like, this is unlike anything I've ever heard. And I want more of this. It's strange, isn't it? That a lot of people who get into fish do so with the more accessible songs like fee and bouncing around the room yeah. and uh, sample in a jar, for example, you know, those perfect sure. four minute pop songs, basically. I mean, there's, I, I don't mean that as an insult fish has a talent and my um, Tom Marshall does as well for putting together these really accessible, fun, danceable and memorable songs. Yeah. But you happen to pick their opus. That's yeah. like, that's like 25 minutes long. <laughs> I, yes. I also remember hearing in that version, of course, it gets to the end and suddenly everyone is yelling cheesecake, you know, and I, and I was like, I think I was just, it just intrigued the hell out of me. Um, and I think, you know, if I think back on it, it was pages playing was so beautiful in, in especially the first, you know, quarter of yam. I mean, it's like, just delicate and sort of, it's just gorgeous. And then Trey's solos. I am somebody who is drawn to the adventure of music. And some of the poppy stuff that I might have heard from Fish seemed more like other people's music. Like it was fine, but it didn't really grab me. And this sounded so interesting. Uh, it turned out that that's something that, you know, that's a great sign. If you're really going to like Fish, it's probably a better sign that you like yem than that you like sample. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> you know? And it tees you up because it doesn't get much weirder than that. You know, it, I, I agree with you. And these aren't yeah. your words, but it seems you, know, like yeah. you enjoy myself is the most fish fish. So where did it go from there? What was your next step into the fish universe after discovering you enjoy myself? Yeah. Um, uh, what, well, what, what year was this? When was this? Just this. Yeah, this was. That's a great question. Yeah. So this was in 2001. Um, it might have even been in fall of 2000. Oh, so you just missed them. That's right. When I they just, went on hiatus. I knew people. So I was at the University of Rochester and I knew people. Oh, I was in I Buffalo. Knew, we should have waved to each other. We should have waved to each other. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew people uh, who were going to see them in 1999, but I just felt I had no connection to it. I hadn't listened to the end yet. I just was like, I don't even know what that is, you know? But after I heard that, I started just listening to more and more and more stuff and getting, 
as is my pension, when I find something I like, I get really obsessed with it. And so I started to become a big dork and use, you know, BitTorrent. And I guess at the time it was Napster. Napster, a LimeWire, yeah. LimeWire to go find more and more shows and read message boards and got on fish.net. I just went down the rabbit hole real fast. Um, you know, I remember when I found the Went Gin, you know, like terrible audience recording, but I was so excited that I found this like iconic version of the song and it seemed so great to me. And then, you know, I was really sad understanding that the band was on hiatus and that I, I wasn't sure when or if they would come back. And I just, you know, I, I, I started my first concerts, jam band concerts um, were that summer of 2001. Um, I saw Phil and friends um, with my parents who were great to go to concerts with, knew a bunch of people. I mean, it was a great, it was like all of a sudden I came back home and, you know, I, I had had a similar moment listening to Help Slip Franklin's at, at, in my dorm and, you know, smoking a joint and just being like, I get it, <laughs> you know, I get it. And then, and then I kind of went home and was like, mom and dad, you know, I get it. <laughs> You know, they were probably thinking it was worth sending him to college just for that. Now he gets it. Yeah. So that was really fun. And they were like, well, you want, you know, you want to come to a show? And so I remember seeing my first Phil show was in Massachusetts that summer. And actually, one of the things I most remember is that I had seen so few shows that my ears were really virgin, you know, and I remember at that concert being like, oh my God, it's so loud and my ears hurt a lot. <laughs> but the first show I saw of Film Friends was really fun and I knew a lot of Grateful Dead music. It was a little over my head. It was a little sort of esoteric. They were playing like a lot of lesser known songs at the first show. Film and then I saw does the- that, right? Film and yeah. Friends is, I think of, and I know that we're getting a little off point, yeah, but yeah. The, of all the Grateful Dead side projects and members, mm-hmm. uh, individual projects, I've always loved Phil and friends the most because he's always willing to push. He's always, he's never satisfied with conventional music. He'll push his band members and himself to play things that are either abstract or sideways, a little angular. And it's always the, I think, in my opinion, even if he is, you know, God bless him, if he's going to sing, but still (laughs) his music is always the most interesting to me. But I've loved the way that he has, brought jazz into the music he plays. Phil and Friends is a very jazzy band, especially back then, uh, the quintet. Um, but uh, no, I agree with you. I mean, I love I love all the stuff. I mean, I remember they played at that show, um, The Golden Road to Unlimited Devotion, which was, of course, The Grateful Dead's first single. Yeah. But I'd never, I'd never heard it. And I, and I remember asking some old head next to me, like, I thought I really knew The Grateful Dead. Like, what is this? You know? And yeah, it was- Phil crazy. loves the early, early catalog. Yes. He really digs deep. I have a feeling that it fared thee well when they played a lot of those like Viola Lee blues and a lot of those really early dead songs. Yeah. I have a feeling that was him who put it in the set list. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he does all that stuff. Rosemary and like all these weird early dead songs. Anyway, the next night, which was, uh, I, I'm forgetting the exact date. It was July, 2001 um, at Hartford. What, that was just one of those nights. And I'd never had a night like that before. I mean, I had that roots experience, but seeing music that I already knew and loved and is like my thing and seeing them play like that. I mean, they played a Slipknot at that show that is still the greatest Slipknot I've ever heard. I mean, certainly live. I mean, just the way that John Molo played drums on that, that 
He's the, the like, greatest. Oh my God. It was like, it was absolutely like a peak life experience, that show, which I highly recommend anybody listening who hasn't heard this show. It's the Hartford Phil and Friends 2001. There's a live recording on archive.org. It's a phenomenal show uh, and just blew me away. And then Fish came back on New Year's Eve 2002 for right. the New Year's Eve show at MSG to initiate the 2.0 era. They took about a month. Oh, no, they played at Hampton, I think, the next couple of nights as well. That's right. Mm-hmm. And then there was roughly a month off. And then they came back for a widely successful February 2003 winter tour. Yes. And is that when you first saw them? Yeah, uh, February 24th, 2003. Uh, the B.B. King show was at the... Right, that uh, was at the Meadowlands, right? Meadowlands, Brendan Byrne yeah. Arena? Yeah, yeah. It was at that time the Continental Airlines Arena. But uh, yeah, that's the one. And uh, and yeah, I mean, that show was, it got off to a great start. I think they opened with Down With Disease and then they did a like one of those cool ambient jams coming out of it. It was really fun. And the first few songs are great. There was a Wolfman's and a Karina. Um, and then B.B. King came out, which was great and exciting. But then he was there for like an hour. And, you know, some of the jams just didn't really go anywhere. They were just basic blues riffs. So I was really kind of like, wanting fish i mean i've been you know it's it's weird i now i feel so grateful i saw that show because i got to see bb king you know which i i'm huge respect for and getting to see him and trey having fun up there was like a real special experience but i've been waiting my whole life to see fish you know basically like this was my first show so i was really eager for the second set which was a little bit of an odd set but has a actually a really nice haley's jam in it and then had a fantastic and I think actually quite overlooked twist that is almost 20 minutes long and gets into some pretty dark, very uh, 2.0 spaces. And I remember that experience very vividly. It felt like sort of a time portal opened when they got to the end of the song. And then I just, you know, went through this like wormhole, you know, of, of like losing my sense of time and space just from the improv, you know, from what, what they, and I remember when they came back I think a lot of people being at your first live extended fish jam might have this where it's like, then the song comes back and you're like, wait a minute. It's still the same song. <laughs> you know? yeah. 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 It's, it happened. <laughs> it, it didn't happen to me until my second show. Mm-hmm. My second show was December 28th, 1998 at yeah. Madison square garden. It was the first show of the four night holiday run. And they open the second set. I always mix them up. It's either Wolfman's and then Karini or Karini and then Wolfman's. I can't uh-huh. remember which the order is, but both of those, I forgot what song was being played. Oh, yeah. In the middle of it, both times. And it really doesn't even matter. <laughs> you know, it's eventually what you it like. It's actually very funny to me that fish fans obsess over sort of like ranking all the songs because they're not songs. You know what I mean? It's like. It's like they're really what you're comparing is the improv that happens to happen within the constraint of the song, you know, but it's like, it could be so variable. I mean, I don't have a better idea for how to do it, but it's just sort of, (laughs) it's just sort of funny though, because it's like, how do you even compare these things? They're like all just jams, you know what I mean? Yeah. I remember going back to the dead for a second. I remember reading an interview with Jerry Garcia, who and this was in the early 70s, I think, the interviewer, the journalist asked him, the question was something like, I want to ask you about Dark Star. 
Like uh-huh. it was as simple like that. And Jerry's response, I'll never forget it. Huh. I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have it memorized. But he said something like, you realize when you ask me about Dark Star, you're asking me about every Dark Star that we've ever played. As right. if this, wow. as if this short, literally like a minute and a half song, quote unquote song that's called Dark Star is just a doorway. You know, that yes. it kind of always exists in this weird world. And the song is just what's needed for entry. When was this show played? So today we're here to talk about August 7th. I'm sorry, August 2nd, 2003 mm-hmm. at the IT Festival at the Loring Air Force Base in Limestone, Maine. So before we get into the show itself, you picked day one of the festival. Before we get into the musical highlights, let's talk a little bit about the festival itself. Why did you pick this show of all the shows you've been to? Why did this one stand out to you? Oh, so many reasons. I mean, uh, it was, well, it was the first festival experience I'd ever had. Um, It also was, I think the word I would use for it is, like up until that point, it was certainly the most cohesive and sort of sublime musical experience that I I had, you know, for both fish was just, you know, for that incarnation of what they were up to. I think this is like the peak. It's like, it's just, they were tight. They were really creative. Um, They were just, they meant business. I mean, people think about the hiatus period as one where things got sloppy Trey had trouble. None of that was true this night. I mean, this was a magical night of fish. And I had never experienced that before, but there's so much that's memorable about it to me. Beyond the music, I mean, the tower and the tower jam and all the theatrics around that and driving all the way up to the northernmost tip of North America with a bunch of uh, fish fans was just everything about it was such an adventure. Um, But I'd still say even having seen, you know, well over a probably 150 shows since then, it remains one of my most cherished fish experiences. And I think it holds up musically on tape, um, depending on your taste, of course. Yeah, I think that's uh, a pretty big asterisk to put in there. Uh, I yes. agree with you on everything you said. And what we're going to talk about today, I'm sure this will come up again. I yeah. think that 2.0 is often, like you said, overshadowed by 2004 that people yes. tend to forget there was a very successful and musically satisfying year ahead of that in 2003. Yes. And so this was my first festival also, first mm. fish festival and over overall festival. This to date was the last festival up in Limestone. Yeah. Should be noted. Uh, I saw five or six shows in 2003 before it. And like you said, the experience is as important as the music. And Watkins Glen is a wonderful festival site. I love it because I'm only like five hours away from it. Uh, but there's something to be said, like you like you mentioned, for the journey up to Limestone. This is before Google Maps. This is largely before GPS. Uh, you don't set ways to get up there. You know, it's maps and print maybe MapQuest if you had a printer. I just remember the overriding excitement. Uh, one moment that stuck in my mind was we were stuck in traffic, of course, for 24 hours. Once you got to, I think it's Caribou County is the name of the area uh, or Aristook. That's the name of it. Aristook County. And I remember it was the middle of the night, maybe somewhere between two and five in the morning. I got out of the side of the car to take a piss on the side of the road. And when I looked up, 
you could see the entire universe. The sky was so clear at night. It was just this very peaceful mm. Zen feeling. And you're only there with other fish fans. They really do create their own worlds. Yes. Well said. What was your experience getting in? Well, I remember the long, long drive from Camden. Um, I was going with my girlfriend, Stephanie, who lived in Bangor, actually. And she was from Bangor. She wasn't living in Bangor at the time. But I'm glad that at least there were two of us because the drive was very, very long and tiring. And, but I, I, I remember this feeling, you know, as we got further up into Maine of, you know, just really being out on an out in the, in the sort of, they say, as they say, the middle of nowhere, but like, you know, just the trees changing and there being less traffic and then starting to eventually feel like, you know, once you hit the traffic jam, it's like, wow, I'm just in, it's like there is this new city made up only of fish fans that is way out here in the middle of the forest, you know, and, and there is something about that. I just remember the feeling of like, I am part of something that is very special here. Like, this is not normal, <laughs> you know? In the um, best way. In the best sense, yes. Um, and I remember there being this incredible sunset when we were pulling in on the first day. Just the whole sky was just lit up orange and fiery. And I remember the band flying over the traffic jam in a jet like this jet kept flying past us <laughs> in their private jet. And we were like, okay, that's nice. You guys have your jet. <laughs> it must be fun. At least you're having fun up there. Um, I do remember the sound check and thinking it was, you know, I mean, I didn't realize how spoiled I was. I mean, I kind of did, but like I'd never seen fish, you know, in any sustained period before, but just like, you know, and they would do jams. It's certainly 97, eight had plenty of jamming. But I mean, just how exploratory they were feeling at this time was really almost in a category of its own. You know, I mean, this, that the sound between the sound check and the tower jam, I mean, two just totally improvised hours of music, you know, and then regularly at this time, I mean, doing, you know, 25 minute pipers, 20 minute twists, you know, I mean, just these huge improvisational ep epics um, that, uh, you know, I think hearing the sound check, I was feeling so excited about um, the spaciousness that like Maine and being way up there, the air up there, the, the terrain, so sort of just like um, out on the ledge. It just felt really appropriate and fitting for where they were at of just wanting to kind of not just stretch out, but like really kind of be there was an introspectiveness and a kind of um uh just like anything could happen yeah i guess space. spirituality yes you know it's not i don't think it's hyperbole to say that you know to feel mm -hmm. at peace or to feel like you are above your normal station in life when you are that far away from the rest of the world anything familiar uh cell phones were certainly out and available but not omnipresence not everyone had one you know, in 2003, I just had one for a year, I think at that yeah. point, you know, my Nokia <laughs> and, and Bob, then there was no service anyway, you know, it was, so you were really detached and interdependent only on your crew. And if not right. your crew, then the people around you. And there is something liberating about that and also unfamiliar at the same time. 
Yes, definitely. I, I, it's so interesting to remember how much more in the moment I was without a phone, you know, just, just taking it in, um, just kind of, yeah. And then, I mean, I have many memories of being there and just the like circus that it was, um, which I'd never been at something quite like that before. Um, and just like how many people I talked to just like so many stories. And I also quickly figured out that like a lot of people, knew way more about how to do this than I did. I've never felt like such an amateur in my life. Yeah, exactly. It was like, whoa, you people have thought about this. I just brought a tent. Yeah, we we brought a grill and like some grillable meats. Like we had like a coffin cooler, those like really long igloo, uh, Mm -hmm. really large coolers. But it mostly had beer and water and it, mo- and it just had like hot dogs and hamburgers. And that was really it. And you get real sick of hot dogs and hamburgers three meals a day after two days. But yeah, people had six setups. People were yeah. just seemed to go with the flow so much better than I was able to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other memory I have of the experience that was really memorable was, um, you know, I did want to get a good spot. At the time, I thought the best spot was to be right in front of the soundboard. Now, I think it's actually to be a little closer than that especially at a big festival. It was fine. Sound wise, it was fine. But um, in order to get that spot, you know, I wanted to go wait in line. And uh, I think it was on the, I think it was the second day, actually. Um, I was in front of the gate that the security guards just really uh, just did not get this together. They ended up (laughs) letting another line in before the line I was in, like, and everybody saw it. So it was the only time I've ever been in a fish show where the line actually crashed the gate they knocked the whole thing down and they knocked the security cards over and just ran in. Um, and it was a scary experience because uh, all these people running in a mob and like people falling down. And it was like, uh, it was wild. The picture in my mind's eye right now is like a compilation of that scene in, I think it's bittersweet motel for the great went when everyone's lining up to get to yes. the stage. Um, and then it's also a flash of the who in Cincinnati in 1979 and that tragedy. And then maybe the last scene of uh, the Lord of the Rings when there's these giant battles of orcs rushing a castle. It's like somewhere in between the three of those. That's exactly what it felt like. Plus all of this adrenaline and just like pent up joy of like, we're getting to go see our favorite thing in the world. You know, thankfully we're not about to go into battle. We're just going to go listen to music, <laughs> but, but it, it was scary. I mean, I think Stephanie like got fell down and almost got like somebody ran over. I mean, it was just mm. like uh, it was an intense experience. And Fish really did get their security of how to manage this stuff. You'd think they would have had it a little bit better by 2003, but oh, my experience is that they got way more professional about that, as especially 3.0. But yeah. back then, it was still a little bit like they were just making it up. And, you know, uh, and, you know, as I look back on it, I mean, I remember sitting in line waiting for that door to open, talking to a guy I met there who was there by himself, had been on the entire tour, had not missed a single show the whole summer, traveled all over the country seeing these shows. And um, we just talked about all of his favorite memories from it and being on the road. And it really made me think about, you know, people would ask Jerry about, like, you know, what do you think about these people following you everywhere? And he was, and he would say, um, well, I feel like, you know, in the 1920s and 30s that people would go hop a train to go have an adventure in America and that there was a place for that. 
And, you know, I don't know that people really have those chances anymore. And if that's what the Grateful Dead is about, I feel really good about that. Yeah, you know? I think he called it the last great adventure. Yeah, something like that. And I remember really thinking that when I was sitting with that guy, just like, wow, we're really having adventures together. And that there's that feels great to be doing that. Set one. So let's go over today's show. Now, just for anyone listening, this is a three-set show. And not only that, but it's an extremely long three-set show. I haven't checked or written it down, at least, on the Fission, fish.in recording. But I would wager that it's at least four hours of music, three sets all told, not counting the tower set, which happened at midnight. So rather than go over it song by song, I think that would take too long that anyone listening has in your commute or on your walk or your drive. We're going to just pick out what we considered were the best highlights set by set, kind of throw those around. So the first one that I threw out as listening was the second song of the first set, which is Yamar, which normally would be, you know, a typical summer first set settle into your groove. But this one went for 17 minutes. And maybe it's the quality of the recording that's up on fish.in, but right away, one of my first thoughts were Fishman is really, really active on the snare drum on this recording. Cause normally yeah. I think it's doing rim shots. Then this came up a number of times. It was almost like he was playing a new Orleans second line drum beat. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What did you think of this Yamar? I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, this is, it's like one of the best versions of the song. I mean, it yeah, was probably one of the, very- the best. I mean, yeah, the only other one I know of is, you know, 12, 13, 97 in Albany. There's an extraordinary jam out of Yamar. But I mean, I think it just speaks to the to the to the adventurousness we were talking about, where it's like second song right out of the show. You know, it's like afternoon set and they're playing almost 20 minute jam that gets to some pretty dark and introspective and beautiful places. I mean, I remember there being a great rollicking energy of just, you know, for me, it was, it was ecstatic that this was happening, uh, you know, that, that early in the show, because, you know, I mean, anybody who's listened to fish long enough knows what a treat this is to be getting a jam like this in the second song of the show. I mean, even in fish's most revered years, I mean, 1995, 1993, most first sets are still just a bunch of songs, you know, right. With maybe one song that might pierce the 10 minute mark. Exactly. Right. And that's why, I mean, that's the thing, like this era is one of the most adventurous of their entire career. And I think Yamar really sums that up. It's, it's, it's just a, such a keeper. Yeah. And this is one of those times where it's not just, I think in general, it's a bad look to think that length equals quality because I think there's plenty of tracks from 2004 that would argue strictly against that (laughs) philosophy, especially toward the end. But this Yamar, and also that throughout this show and the songs that we're going to talk about, they're very sectionalized. There are very clear turning points in the jams that mm-hmm. that even if they're not like you could play it individual of one another. And like we were talking about before, not have take a hundred guesses and not realize that it's from Yamar, that that's where it was birthed. Uh in at 12 minutes or by 11 minutes. The only the faintest hint of Yamar is back is there. You could barely tell it that it started there. And by around 12 and a half minutes, it's almost like we're gonna go right into Timber Ho. And you couldn't be farther away from Yamar.
Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. And, you know, one thing about this um, era that I thought was really interesting is that I've read interviews with Trey that he made a point on the summer tour in particular of not really being available backstage for any of the party stuff that he, he was um, meditating and doing yoga and he was on his like really clean diet. He was really had made an effort to be very grounded and balanced and sort of like present by not getting swept up in all of that stuff before the show. Um, and that he had a whole practice um, which, you know, I, I think, I don't know. I feel like it kind of comes through in the sense that it's not just quantity that you can feel him being, he is right there. And I feel like for this show and the is a great example, he's an active and very thoughtful, patient presence. After a minute or two of that, it's almost as if the whole band remembers, oh shit, we're only in the second song of the, <laughs> of the whole day. Uh, let's let's change gears and then go right into Runaway Jim. Yeah. Instead. Uh the next song that I that we uh kind of put together is Reba. This is a Reba that I've heard uh, like a hundred times, and, yeah. which is really saying something because there's a lot of things about Fish's playing in 2003 that I don't find as palatable. And like, you know, Trey's tone is chunkier. It's a little bit harsher. You know, it's uh, it's it's more, it has some more dissonance. I mean, there's just, there isn't quite the same sort of sweet, easy accessibility to their sound as in some previous eras. And yet Reba, which is like one of the most delicate songs in the Fish repertoire, the jam, this version is so patient. It's so methodical. And at points it becomes so quiet that it's one of my very favorite versions, uh, which I'm shocked to say about Ariba in 2003. I really am. Yeah. And they yeah. didn't even play it that often in 2.0 overall. Uh, that word delicate that you used, that came up in my notes as well when I was listening mm-hmm. to it. The word delicate, uh, blissful came up, beautiful. Uh, another quote was my favorite stuff from Fish. <laughs> um, I wrote maybe my favorite jam of the weekend, but then as I kept listening, I probably wrote that about five more times. <laughs> and that yeah. doesn't even count the next day. But back to Reba, uh, it, it, we talked about transitions a little bit uh, mm-hmm. just a couple of minutes ago, how it seems like I agree with you that Trey was very focused and it comes through in the playing. And these jams are like almost sweets, S-U-I-T-E-S, T-E-S. Mm-hmm. At 12 and a half minutes, this Reba.
it's almost like someone flips a light switch and now they're playing a Neil Young song. Do you know the part I'm talking about? I do. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 I, I was so struck by that too. That's the other thing is that, you know, the best Rebas are not just great in a Reba-esque way. They also have passages where it starts to even develop its own sort of sound of that jam, you know, like it starts to bring in something unexpected. I mean, I'm thinking about like, you know, there's the fabulous Reba from Augusta, uh, Maine, I think it's uh, 1019, um, uh, I want to say 10, 2010. And they go into, they go into this whole like Calypso thing and there's the, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Manteca. Yeah, it comes into it. Anyway, so there are some Rebas that really, and I think this is one of them, almost verge into being true, like type two jams at points, you know, where they're really, and in this one, yeah, it's like rocking. There's this extra kind of space, spaciousness and, and pacing that comes in. Um, very unique, very unique. And toward yeah. the end, at about 14 minutes, I kept thinking, all right, they're going to wrap it up soon. I keep expecting to hear that Fishman drum fill that signals the end of the jam before the whistling. Right. But they go for five more minutes. <laughs> and I think I remember at the time thinking to myself, this is a very crystallized memory. To be clear, I don't remember too much, too many specifics from it. But there are some memories that are just crystallized in my mind. And this is one of them that when they kept going and I kept expect, expecting Reba to end, I realized we've got nowhere to go. There's no curfew. There's no, there's no limit to anywhere. I don't have to be anywhere. No one here does. You know, the band doesn't, they're on stage. And so this Reba that goes for about, I think another, like that goes for about 16 minutes total or so. I might be wrong on that. I, I think it's almost 18. I, I, okay. If I'm not mistaken, but yeah. And it just, I remember that's the best part of a fish festival. No curfews for all intents and purposes. The outside world doesn't exist. And actually, Trey said on stage, I think it was, um, I'm trying to remember when. Uh, was it I the great it was after Meat Stick is what I'm, I know. I mean, in this show, okay. Trey, Trey says, he, he just says, we're taking our sweet time up here because we have no place to go for two yes. days. Right. So it's after birds. Right. And there's think, two minutes of silence after birds. Right. And speaking of birds of a feather, when I made my first list in our shared notes of my highlights, for some reason, I left out birds of a feather. So it didn't appeal to me. I mean, it appealed to me, but it didn't stick out to me, but it obviously did to you. Tell us about this birds of a feather and your love for it. You know, this one really grew on me. I actually don't remember at the time. I mean, it, it was, there's a lot of tension in release. It almost becomes a full out new, like type two kind of new improvisational thing several times, but then stays within the lane of Birds of the Feather. It reminds me a lot of another great version, which is from uh, the Camden show in 1999, uh, July 10th, 1999. And then it's like, a, it's basically just, it's like, I'm trying to think how to describe this. There are some fish jams, they do this with possum often, where it's like, they're still playing the song for sure, but they're just like messing with it a little bit. It's like, it's, it's going a little faster or slower than, a tonality is coming in or there's teases that are coming in. And the, I love the tension and release of that. Um, so I just found this to be like a real adventure within Birds of a Feather. It almost ends up being 17 minutes long without ever really leaving the basic parameters of the song.
fun. Right, which is just as impressive as if they did leave the whole, (laughs) you know, the whole structure of the song and then played for 17 minutes. Uh, The last highlight that I wrote about for this set was Limb by Limb. And my phrasing was, it's standard, but at about nine minutes, the band is on a razor's edge. It becomes very delicate and serene, which wouldn't be the case for most of 2.0 after this festival. Yes, that's right. I think that's such a great point for about this whole about whole the whole of it and what's so special about it is that is there is this patience and this quiet kind of sereneness that that seemed to be connecting to the I just remember the air and the the sense of the place um, that they just really captured not that that was the first time I mean I think if you think about the like um, the the jam with the candles at Lemon Wheel mm-hmm. in the ambient jam and this kind of spaciousness I think limestone would bring this out in them you know, on other occasions too. But I've just felt like this combination of that with this, you know what it is? It, there's this connection to the to space, to like the universe or even just like spaciness. You know, you think about the tower jam. I mean, the tower looked like a UFO landing. Yes, you know? although I was of, asleep for it, unfortunately. Oh, well, I was very fortunate to get tipped off by a security guard to go stand by the tower. So we were, oh, right, yes. in front of, we were right in front of it. But no, I just think a lot of the effects they're using, you know, if you think about the, we'll talk about the waves jam, but there's a lot of different sound effects that are very much like close encounters or something eerie, kind of like otherworldly that it's starting, you're starting to feel little tastes of that, you know, in the Yomar and in the limb by limb. But the next set is really where that comes in. Set two. Yeah, it flowered very much with the set two opener, which is Down With Disease, a 22 plus minute Down With Disease. We're off to the races just about immediately. And at six minutes, they're already red hot. Playing with fire is the way that I remember it. the same in other in other 2.0 jams but i feel like from 2004 it would take 15 minutes to get there because a lot of people love to cite the spac piper and twist from um 2004 which was i think father's day weekend june 21st and that that's an unquestionable great jam when i was there i thought that there was a lot of muck to wade through before you get to that i think it was like a tweezer reprise peak and yeah. there's nothing there's no denying it but 
there's so much surrounding it. And I don't mean to turn this into a bitch session about 2004, uh-huh. but, but I, I thought that a lot of the highlights that year were surrounded by a lot of wallowing and, and just picking this one, this down with disease. It's like right away, let's go full throttle yeah. zero to 90. The song just ended. Now it's jam for what feels like forever. Oh yeah. There's some great, I mean, so a couple of thoughts on that real quick. I mean, one of the things I'm really looking for in a fish jam is thematic ideas, you know? So is the, does the band cohere around a theme? And the second half of this down with disease has a lot of funky, great organ playing. And there is some really beautiful theme from Trey that comes in. That's, you know, it's raucous. I mean, it's, this one's not the serene part as much, no, but certainly it's, not. it's a, it's so much fun. Uh, the other thing I want to say about, about this is that um, something I really look for in people in conversations is a, a low ratio of words to insights. What I mean by that is you're saying, Don't come you're, to me. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you're doing great, man. I'm, I think you're doing great. Uh, but you know, it's like, it's like, it's like if somebody has to say the same thing 12 times, the insight is losing its, you know, its meaning. And if you can succinctly, you know, use your word choice, but be saying insightful things. And I think it's true musically. You know, I think what you're talking about is like in 2004, Trey had insightful things to say. He has also had a lot of times he tried to come up with something and it just was kind of a mess. And so you're wading through this. It's like it would take a while to wade through this kind of fogginess. And then they would come across something that would work. Whereas, you know, in this show, you're hearing a band that is able to just, you know, the ratio of notes to themes or to good ideas is very low. So even though the jam is 20 minutes, it's like fire the whole time. Yeah. yeah, this Down With Disease has an early peak, but the peak is like nine minutes long. It's like tantric sex as a fish peak. You know, it's not until 12 minutes into the track that it first starts to cool down. Like what a journey we've already got to before <laughs> yeah. it just relaxes and even a little bit because at the 15 minute track, there's still these big swaths of sound, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is very compelling. It washes over yeah. you. And I think this is where we go from machine gun tray pivoting to more typical 2.0 soundscape fish. And it's not as intense as later soundscapes would be, especially during waves, which we'll get to toward the very end of that track. But it's the 17 minute mark is what I picture and what I hear when I think of 2.0. It's a little bit without a center. It's spacey. There's a lot of effects. It's laden with effects. A lot of symbol work on from Fishman, which is 
very impressive. It's a lot harder than it sounds, I think. during this tour it's it's this big like yeah yeah china symbol yeah that's one of the real distinct signatures of their sound from this era you'll hear it in a lot of jams and he doesn't do that anymore not that sound i never hear it very rarely he would be using it throughout like for like several minutes on end during some of these jams i think the down with disease portion you're talking about is one of those yeah and especially toward the very end it gets incredibly dark, but it's only about a minute's worth of this very, very dark soundscape. My last words on my notes were, what a masterpiece. Yes. By the time I was listening to Waves, I couldn't believe we were still in the same set, let alone the same show. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will just say that the discern does have a nice little jam at the end of it that, uh, is, is very much of, in a, of, of a piece with some of the themes we've been talking about. It's very s- thoughtful, subtle, kind of introspective. Um, it felt really fitting to me at this show. But then, yeah, the waves, I mean, the waves gets into this space that is, I think it is like, it is one of the, the sort of the most ambient sort of real soundscape experiences I've ever had it at this show. I mean, everybody talks about the ambient jams of 1998 and 1999, but I think this one is like a quintessential. I mean, this sounds like, like, a, a, you know, a side of a Brian Eno record. I mean, and not a, not an easy one necessarily to listen to, but I mean, just the, the other thing that's hard to approximate or um, to convey is that being there, you know, you're standing with 70,000 people, and you're just feeling this vibration. And the sun well, is going down by this point. Let's not forget. This is toward dark. the end of the, yeah. right, oh, the yeah. end of the second set. Sun is down. And I just remember there's this note near the end of the jam that Mike just plays this one note, just this, mm-hmm. you know, I can't even, and it just kept going and going. I had like a complete out-of-body experience. I mean, it was just like, like, I don't even know. I, it felt very like, like I was just like in this sea of space and time. Kind of, you know, it's so surreal too. It was the weirdest music I'd ever seen at a concert by a long shot. I'll double know? that.
yeah i'll yeah. i'll cheers to that yeah <laughs> and the thing is i was i was so excited that fish came back i was at a festival it's possible i wanted more out of the song waves than i did out of the jam like i really wanted to love it like i did reba or you know choctaw's torture which also was really stretched out at this festival yes uh, so maybe I didn't appreciate at the time how intense the jam actually got. And this jam, now that, you know, in retrospect, we could look at it. It's kind of a, um, like a precursor to the tower jam later. Oh yeah. Like very word, much so. Oh, very much so. Yeah. The effects, the things I would really point to are first, how rare it is. Even now, I mean, if you think about the way they play now for Trey to leave as much space in a jam as this. I mean, it's truly minimalist playing. Like there's, I mean, it's really unusual, you know, and and, uh, and also Paige's effects. The effects that he were use, he, he's using in this are just, I mean, there's not really a good word for them. I mean, they're like, uh, they're just some of the most creative accenting that I, I've ever heard him do in their career. Um, and it's not, the other thing about this is that it's such an interesting demarcator. I feel like, 3.2.0, especially a show like it, it's almost a show that's, I don't know how to say this without feeling ageist, but I, it's almost like I couldn't really fully appreciate it until I was like over 30, <laughs> you know, because there's stuff in here that it's not just a party, you know, I mean, you're, you're getting into some energy that's like much, you know, the band is aging, right? I mean, they're not just kids anymore. And, you know, they're going, there's like a yeah, lot. They're in their forties at this point. Yeah, yeah. They're going, there's a lot there. And, and there's something about it. That's like, it's very reflective music and it, it asks more of the audience. It asks patience, you know, it asks like being willing to just kind of be with this wide open soundscape and some eerie sounds too. Sometimes there's something that's like a little dissonant or almost, it's not just like a big party. You know, and they've done dissonant music for sure. I mean, there's plenty of very dissonant jams from 1995, but not like this. This is taking it out in the other direction where it's like minimalist. Like a, um, I agree with everything you're saying, and I'm reflecting on it myself. I wouldn't be surprised if I had a time travel machine, if I could visit myself at this show. I might have been very bored during this point. I really may have, you know, as excited as I was to be there. It's to me, flashes of Pink Floyd came yeah, in, you it. know, like live at Pompeii or Umaguma, like really abstract, weird stuff, like dimensional yeah. shifts sort of things. And you mentioned 1999 earlier and that there was plenty of ambience uh, 
in late 98, 99 and parts of 2000 also. But yeah. you're right. This is in its own category. I've had a number of guests on this show choose shows from 1999. And I was pretty delinquent in my knowledge of 99 as a whole. And I think that the ambience during that time at the end of 1.0 was kind of like a developing churning thunderstorm. Whereas this is more like gateways into new dimensions and like mm -hmm. planes of existence tumbling over each other. There's some real weightiness to some of these, to some of these spaces that they were in, particularly at this weekend, I thought. And I even would say, particularly at this show, like there really aren't many wasted notes at this show. And I think as much as I love the next night, and I had a great time at the next night, I wouldn't say that as, as quite as much. Like, I think that ghost probably could have been like 10 minutes shorter. And I love that ghost. <laughs> I love that ghost. But there are sections of it where it's just like, it's just like sort of jumping around and like making a lot of sound and fury. Um, but this night, it wasn't like that, you know? Oh, wait, one last note on this waves. I don't know if you noted this. I wrote it in the notes for us that around 19 minutes of the recording that's on fish.in, you could very clearly hear the beginnings of a fight of two guys over a bump of Coke. And <laughs> for nothing else, it's worth listening to just for that. I listened to the soundboard, so I haven't heard that, but that's funny. Oh, you got to make your way over to fish, oh fishing. And to wrap it up with set three, I put three highlights down. Rock and roll, uh, yeah. which I think opened the set, and then seven below into sense and subtle sounds were my it's, two big yeah. ones that stood out to me. That's right. That's right. It's actually listed on fish.net as seven below sense, seven below. Uh, oh, which okay. Is, which is interesting. That's certainly what I heard at the time. I think it just depends on how you define if they actually go back into a song or if it's a jam of the song. But I mean, it certainly sounds like they're playing seven below again. Have so you ever seen the nerd Twitter wars on fish.net about, uh, about what constitutes like an, an arrow versus a carrot versus right. is it a part, is it party time or is it a party time jam? Are they quoting party time or is right. it actually party time? That's the question uh, to me. The best question in this particular case is whether it's a seven below jam or whether it is seven below proper that I am not qualified to answer. <laughs> so. And just hook that into my veins. I love getting down and dirty <laughs> with the with that nerd nerd Me stuff. Uh, so rock and roll. Right away, there's some great drum fills. Fishman always gets me. If Fishman is on point, then I'm on point yeah. for a show. If he's yeah. willing to step out, then I'm willing to step in. Uh, this is when a rock and roll opener could really mean a major jam is on the way. I think these days it's more of like a six or seven and a half minute good time with a great solo. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much it, which is a good place for it. After all, it is a Velvet Underground song. You know, it's Lou Reed. It's aside from maybe heroin, you know, they're not the most. Right. And I mean, the song heroin, not the. Yeah, yeah I know. Necessarily. I know. OK, yeah. that, you know, a lot of those songs are pretty concise and that's fine for rock and roll. But back then, rock and roll was kind of an under the, you know, um, a kind of underrated jam vehicle. Mm hmm. 
Yeah, I think you're right about that. Like if this were today, this version of rock and roll, it would be an instant classic. Definitely. Yeah. And I couldn't believe that the band who just played that version of Waves is now able to play this coherent, accessible rock and roll jam. And I wrote again, by the way, this may be my favorite jam of the show so far. It came (laughs) up again during rock and roll. celebratory uh, peak in this of just like rollicking kind of like very high energy, but, but really thematic to my earlier stuff, you know, they developed their own theme in this one. Um, I don't think I like it quite as much as the disease jam. Uh, I think the disease jam was the centerpiece of the day of the three sets. It could be that it's like bookended with waves. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, but the rock and roll is terrific. And, you know, just looking back at this, you know, you really have a good point there. I mean, there, this was, I believe, the first exploratory rock and roll of 2.0. Um, and the first real far out one, you know, probably since like PNC in 2000. But yeah, no, I'm with you, man. This is a good one. And then Sense and Subtle Sounds from Seven Below or however you want it to be labeled in the set list. I love the intro. Don't know why they ever got rid of it. Bring it back. Hashtag bring back intro. Uh, this one takes off after about nine minutes with only three minutes left. So it's very concise. And what an ending, like something very creative happens about 12 minutes in and I'm ready for this to go on for a really long time. I was surprised 
and did not quite recall this. Maybe it's because I, I don't know if I was fading a little bit or something by the time this happened. I was but, definitely uh, fading. I believe I was standing in mud also. Yeah. But the seven below sense sequence may have been my favorite portion of re-listening to the show. I thought the sense jam in particular, the seven below jam was great too, but the sense jam just gets so exciting. I mean, it just builds and builds and builds. I mean, there is a fantastic jam that's like rocking. It's just a rocking. They are totally hooked up, having a ball. Um, I mean, I was like dancing all over my kitchen here in this sense. <laughs> and uh, and I, I really, it was surprising. I did not remember it being that fantastic. Because after this, they closed, I think, and then there was the encore, which was Dog Log and I don't Mango. have it. And Mango Song. That's right. It was the first time I heard the Mango Song. I was delighted. Uh, I was exhausted beyond uh, <laughs> yeah. comprehension. That's why I slept through the... Uh, the tower jam. Cause by the time we made it back, we didn't know what to stay up for it, like stay in the area for it. And by the time we got back to our campsite, which like you said earlier was so far away, it was like, we were up for 24 hours before in traffic. So we didn't crash into the car in front of us. It was just, I was done. And I think that may be why I have such fonder memories of the second night compared to this one, but maybe in retrospect, listening on my couch, you know, in, in 2021 that I really enjoy this possibly more. And they may have switched places. So Nate, Toby, we've said a lot. I'm sure we could say more given the opportunity, but I think people are getting to their destinations by now. They're probably getting out of their cars and they got home or they got to work. So We'll give them a break at this point. Thank you so much for coming on Attendance Bias, bringing up this show that, truth be told, I haven't listened back to as a whole in a long, long time because I was always stuck to the next night. But like I said, I think those two things are going to switch. So I appreciate you being here, and I appreciate you bringing up such a high-profile show that deserved to be listened to again and revisited. Absolutely. Well, it's been so much fun talking about this with you. And the only asterisk I would add to what I said before is, yes, I don't know if I would necessarily say that this show is better than the Nassau show, which is also (laughs) part of O3. That might be a little bit of a stretch. That's definitely the best show of the February run. But I don't know. This show still feels to me like it's a real one of a kind experience. I think that know? festivals against regular two yeah. set shows, I feel like that's boxers fighting out of yeah. their weight class. Like you right. can't put a featherweight against a heavyweight. That's, yeah, that's they're right. in their own categories. That's right. But yay, if you could just pick two, pick those. Well, that episode went quite a while. I guess that's just the nature of the beast when you talk about three set shows. And I'm glad we got just about everything in. But during this long episode, Nate and I had a lot to say. So, of course, we need to double check a few things. And that means it's time for the attendance bias fact check. Attendance bias fact check. During our tangent about the Grateful Dead and Phil and Friends, Nate said that one of his first shows was the Phil and Friends Quintet in Hartford during the summer of 2001. That show was on July 21st, 2001 at the Hartford Meadows. As far as the early Grateful Dead catalog goes, that show included Cosmic Charlie, Caution, Doing That Rag, and the St. Stephen Into the 11th Suite. The link to that show is on archive.org, and the link is in today's show notes. 
Nathan discusses his first fish show, which was the show when B.B. King came on for about an hour toward the middle and end of the first set. That show was on February 24th, 2003, at the Continental Airlines Arena in the Meadowlands, New Jersey. Back then, it was known as the Brendan Byrne Arena, or before then, it was known as the Brendan Byrne Arena, but the naming rights were sold off to Continental by 2003. Nate and I discussed big jams within composed songs, and I name-checked an interview with Jerry Garcia about Darkstar. The interview was conducted by Charles Reich, and Jerry's exact quote about Darkstar is, You gotta remember that you and I are talking about two different Darkstars. You're, meaning the journalist, you're talking about Darkstar, which you have heard formalized on a record, and I'm talking about Darkstar, which I have heard in each performance as a completely improvised piece over a long period of time. So I, Jerry is saying, I have reached a long continuum of dark stars, which range in character from each other to real different extremes. Dark star has meant while I'm playing it almost as many things as I can sit here and imagine. So all I can do is talk about dark star as a playing experience. That quote resonated with me from the minute I read it, and it put a lot of the early Grateful Dead or late 60s Grateful Dead performances in context. And when we began discussing the first set, I mentioned that August 2nd is a particularly long three-set show. I guessed offhand that it is at least four hours of music, not counting the Midnight Tower set. I was off by just a bit, as the three sets on Fish.in add up to four hours and 28 minutes. And finally, when Nate and I compared Fish's ambient style from late 1.0 to a similar style of 2.0, I described some of it as, quote, a churning thunderstorm. But I have to give credit where credit is due. That is not my analogy. I borrowed the thunderstorm analogy from my friend Chris Casey, who has been on attendance by us twice. He described the sand from December 8th, 1999 as a thunderstorm. And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. I'd like to thank Nate Toby of Northern California for joining me today. I'd like to thank Fish.net for helping with today's fact check and Fish.in, Fishin', for the recording used in today's clips. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review of it on your favorite podcast app. Also, you can come find Attendance Bias on Twitter and Instagram. If you do, reach out, DM me, and I'll send you a free sticker. Please spread the word of the show. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias. Attendance Bias.